Thanks for tuning in to McNamara on Money, a podcast about all things financial. On this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's not the case with callers we may speak to on this show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Listeners to this podcast should consult their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions we might make. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I've got about 15 articles I want to comment on today. My guess is I might get through five. We'll see how that goes, okay? And again, I'm going to skip around, and the different topics will be scattershot, but I can assure you that every one of them has something meaningful for a whole lot of people listening to us. And maybe that subject or that issue, maybe you got it under control, maybe you don't, maybe you're not sure, but I I think it's a better way to do a show. And maybe you can comment on that if you want to give me a call to kind of skip around on different topics, kind of scattershot, although I've selected some great ones, I think, and just get some interest, get some comments, and hopefully help some people get a little smarter about their money, if you will, the thing. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it after 32 years doing this. For whatever it's worth, I love having Justin and Alyssa and Kirk on the show and their meaningful parts of this, but I love doing this show. I'm 75 years old and plan to do it until I don't know who I am. That's my plan, the thing, and it's just way too much fun to, to be working with clients and doing a radio show from my point of view. So there, I've said it and bared my soul to my listening audience here this morning, Tim. But that's the way it is, folks, and hopefully uh, over the years you learned a few things and we've been somewhat helpful in terms of financial discussions and God knows it's complicated enough to say the word finance with regard to what it really involves in this world here. All right, enough of the pontification here. So here we go. So article number one, it's from Yahoo Finance. I read a wide variety of industry topics and subjects and honestly, it's not about where the stock market's going and which companies I should buy. I do reading because I want to understand what people are doing and what behavior people are exhibiting because in my humble opinion, how you behave financially is much more important than what the stock market does tomorrow afternoon. And I will be happy to defend that outrageous statement to anyone, anytime, anyhow. As a certified financial planner, I can tell you easily that that how much you save over time is a whole lot more important than what you're invested in. There, I've said it. And from a behavior point of view, most folks when it comes to investments focus on their return. How am I doing? I'm doing good, I'm doing bad, I'm leaving my financial advisor, I'm doing this, that. The investment return is certainly important. God knows there's enough financial talk shows and television shows that are on that subject of the stock market and all kinds of stuff. But if you've listened to this show before, big picture financial decisions, whether you have mortgages or not, whether you have refinance, uh, how much of a loan you take out to get your kids through college, whether you live within your means, there are numerous 
financial decisions that you're faced with every day in your life that are much more important than whether you're earning 5% or 6% or 7% on your money, okay? And again, happy to have a healthy discussion with anybody who'd like to argue about that. Believe me, you've made some big financial decisions in your life that are much more important than what you earn. And so paying attention to your investments is certainly important, but paying attention to a few other things in your life are is much more important from my point of view. And again, you've probably heard that discussion over the years if you've listened to this show. Anyway, okay, the, the title of this article, it's a long one. It's a miracle of stupidity. Jordan Peterson told Dave Ramsey that this is the number one thing Americans need to accomplish their goals, and it's dead easy. Okay, so that's a MoneyWise is the website that's published the discussion, whatever, and I'm going to do a little reading here. Okay, and this is, let me begin the read and we'll get through it and see what you think, folks. When it comes to vision, many Americans get the concepts importance as far as it comes to their love lives and family goals. But what about finances? Maybe feeling spent, literally, is more like it. On a recent episode of The Ramsey Show, by the way, Dave Ramsey is, uh, I think they called him an investment guru at some point, but he's a pretty smart guy who's got a nationally syndicated TV and radio show. And and he's pretty outspoken and he he says lots of good things that I happen to agree with and a number that I don't. But anyway, he's been in the news a lot and so this is a show that he had a while ago. But anyway... The Ramsey Canadian psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson, contended that it's fairly shocking that so many Americans have failed to visualize their financial goals. All right. It's a miracle of stupidity. That's a quote, not from me, folks. Peterson said, it's the number one thing we should be teaching people and we don't do it at all. Now, this guy's a psychologist. What the heck are we doing listening to a psychologist on a money show? Let me go on here. Peterson told host Dave Ramsey that while poverty has many causes, causes, the absence of a plan, let me say that again, the absence of a plan ranks high up there. And despite the widespread belief that only the rich get richer, Peterson stated that even the rich can't achieve their goals financial or otherwise, without planning. You need to develop a vision for your life, he stressed, and that makes delaying gratification, for example, and not encouraging an impulsive monetary pleasure worthwhile because you're building towards something that you actually want to attain. Plans and goals would be probably the best way to say that. Think about it. We probably have plans and goals for a lot of things in our lives, but based on the average American's knowledge of finance and being able to retire, live comfortably and retire happily ever after, we're not overly good at making financial plans and goals and checking on them as we go. A vision helps you keep going. If you ask Peterson, it boils down to some fairly simple questions. Americans need to ask themselves who they want to be and why, where they see themselves in five years, 
and what they're building towards. In other words, why work if there's nothing worthwhile at the end of the line? Ah, goals and achievement and satisfaction. Ramsey further argued that not only does having high-definition vision benefits you in the long run, but also in the short term as burnout goes away. You're probably tired, but you're not burned out, Ramsey added. This comes as you work towards a goal, Peterson explained. You experience the joys, hopes, and other strong, positive emotions that come with achieving the goal little by little. And that, in turn, makes you want to work even harder to improve your focus. No goal, you have none of that. No vision, no goal, Peterson said. So you're not going to get tired and feel done hard if you sacrifice, if your sacrifices you're endeavoring to do are clearly worthwhile by your own decision or definition. Folks, you need a plan, you need a goal, you need a track to run on, and you need to monitor and revisit that from time to make sure it's going correctly. We, we don't have many clear financial goals in our lives. I want to retire and live happily ever after. A goal needs to be specific. A goal needs to be actionable. Let's see, I want to get to here. And these are the things I have to do. A goal needs to be measurable. As you're going along, checking on that goal, where am I? Am I ahead? Am I behind? Am I on schedule? Okay, and a goal needs to be monitored as you go along. I'm, I never, personally, I've never paid much attention to psychologists and who chime in with investment-related commentary. And I think that's because I always have a plan and I always have goals and that's built into just my genetics. I got lucky, I think. But from anybody's point of view, think about it. If you have a plan, if you have a goal, if you make the goal specific, okay, if you have actions that you know will accomplish that goal, if you monitor those actions, okay, and stick with the plan, there's a hopefully a pretty good chance to accomplish those goals. We Americans in general lack clear, concise, measurable, actionable financial goals. And it's that's just how it is on average. We're pretty poorly educated when it comes to investment-related financial issues. And folks have to become self-educated on that. And that's difficult and confusing. And yeah, you might have a few other things you're doing in your life. So I know that sounds way too generic to be meaningful for most of our listeners, but think about it. You probably have goals that relate to other areas of your life. I want to vote. I want a vacation home. I want to take do this, that, and the other thing. And you probably, hopefully, work to those goals and achieve them. Well, although the financial world is very confusing and very complex, and there's a whole lot of different things you have to know and understand, yep, you need to do the same thing there. And that... I'm sorry if that sounds like generic advice, but it's probably the most important thing I'm going to say in the next hour and a half. Have a plan, have a goal, have it measurable, have actions associated with it, monitor it as you go along, and when you get to the end, celebrate and have a little fun and maybe spend a little money because you got there. All right, moving along. So that was article number one. By the way, our telephone number here on the South Shore is 781-837-4900. All right, so that's number one. Now let me just file this in the right place here. What I'm trying to do here, I'll do that. 
Bear with me, folks. We technology slugs just take a little bit more time. All right, done that. All right. Article number two, and I guess I'll just have to do a little teaser here before the break. This is, a, this is another little tidbit from Dave Ramsey. I, the guy is rather blunt sometimes and somewhat offensive. But So this is not me, folks, but that, this quote is great, and I think it'll be Don't kind of shoot fun. the messenger. Yeah, really, that's right. Okay. <clears throat> you guys have lost your minds. A man asked Dave Ramsey if he and his wife should borrow money. They make $180,000 a year, but spend $80,000 a year on their kids. And by the way, that don't think they're in college yet. So let me read that headline, okay? If you've listened to this show before, we don't do outrageous headlines or statements, but I love this one. You guys have lost your minds. A man asked Dave Ramsey if he and his wife should borrow money. They make 180000 a year, but spend 80000 on their kids. Boy, there's some financial messages built into this one, folks. So I'll read, what do I got, about a minute, Tim? What's that looking like here? A couple? I'll do a quick read. <clears throat> Let's say a man named Dave from Philadelphia called the finance guru. How do you get to be called a finance guru? I don't know. I got to work on that. Maybe I'll put that on my business card or something. Finance guru on the Ramsey show that he was barely making it on a family income of 180000 He was unsure whether to save more or take out a loan to end, to, to make ends meet. That seems like a stupid thing before we even get into the details here. Okay. The family's household income is set to rise once his wife finishes medical school. Wait a minute. They're making 180 and they're even going to get better. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. When it comes to securing your financial future, trust matters. That's why McNamara Financial, a family-owned company, is here for you. As a family-owned company, we understand the importance of your financial well-being. That's why our team of expert financial advisors is committed to your success. At McNamara Financial, we take your trust seriously. That's why all our financial advisors are fiduciaries and certified financial planners, putting your best interests first. With our team of dedicated professionals, you can rest assured that you're receiving top-notch expertise tailored to your unique goals. Don't leave your financial future to chance. Trust McNamara Financial where family values meet financial expertise. Visit our website or call us to schedule a consultation today. McNamara Financial, securing your financial future one step at a time. We're back. My name is Mike McNamara. This is McNamara on Money. And we're talking many and varied financial subjects this morning. And I'm on subject number two. So here we go. There's a fellow who does a financial talk TV show and blog and whatever else named Dave Ramsey. He's been pretty popular these days. And he shows up in the financial media a lot. And I'm going to quote a couple of things from a show of his. So here's the deal. A man named Dave from Philadelphia told the financial guru on Ramsey show that he was barely making it on a family income of $180,000. He was unsure whether to save more or take out a loan to make ends meet. The family's household income is set to rise once his wife finishes medical school. She currently makes $70,000 a year as a resident and will finish school with no student debt. 
She came from a wealthy family, Tim. I can tell you that right now. Anyway, so here's a doctor graduating medical school with no debt. That's a pretty unusual circumstance and a great place to be in, but somehow or other they seem to be overextended. I'm not sure how that works. Anyway, as per, let's see, let's see, anyway, she'll finish medical school with no student debt, but in the meantime, they struggle with his student debt and child expenses. <clears throat> As per his trademark style, Ramsey voted the caller to go a different route. Option C, work more, he told them, adding, can you explain to me why you can't get by with an income of $180,000 a year? The caller revealed he and his wife spend around $80,000 a year solely on their kids. I'm going to be as nice as I can, Ramsey replied. You guys have lost your minds. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ask to dig deeper. Dave from Philadelphia revealed some eyebrow-raising kiddo expenses. At least $50,000 in daycare tuition for two, plus before and after school care, along with paying a nanny in the summer months. Okay, the caller admitted it was a pretty fancy school, especially given that his kids were still preschool age. Okay, they're spending that kind of money for preschool age. The average cost of childcare in Philly is just above $17,000 per child, slightly more in the suburbs, according to childcare website Tutris. We're going to take out student loans for the four-year-old, Ramsey teased. He was, that was a joke, okay. That's what we're coming down to. Budgeting for cost-effective child care is even more critical considering the expenses many Americans can't readily escape. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, so let's just sit back here for a minute and think about this, okay? This is, this is a perfect example of it doesn't make how much, it doesn't matter how much money you may earn it's still difficult to live within your means, whatever your means have to be. I think it's like an American birthright to spend a bit more than you make every year so that you can live a good life. I think that applies to a whole lot of folks. I'll say that on the positive side, people who actually live within their means, okay, have pretty good lives these days and have a pretty high chance of success when it comes to retirement. But getting back to this couple, so... Let's see. She's out of med school. Their income is probably going from a buck eighty to maybe three hundred thousand. Okay, they're spending eighty thousand dollars a year on childcare and miscellaneous things. I'm sorry, this is like way out of proportion. These folks are just way above, okay, what their means are. And what's it going to be like thinking about college when it comes time for saving money for these kids? It's just silly. So I, I, another point or another comment, I guess, I'd say about this article is that doesn't matter how smart you are, you can still make some big financial mistakes. And that's something that I'm very comfortable saying. Sometimes it takes a really smart person to make a really big mistake. And the, these people, how dumb can they be if she's graduating medical school? And yep, maybe he has some college debt, okay, and that's part of the deal. Maybe he made some decisions about going to college and not earning enough money through his major to be okay for it. I don't know the details, obviously, but the point is, it doesn't make 
make a difference how much money you may be earning, there's a pretty good chance you're going to live up to and probably beyond your means and not know about it for a while. And it's probably not going to get easier going forward. So for whatever that's worth, folks, an example of bad behavior, okay, financially speaking, it's everybody has financial issues, but it's what you do about them and how you behave. And it's like things you can control and things you can't control. You can certainly control how much income you spend and where it goes. We're still a free country. I think that probably still works, but we'll see how that goes. Okay. All right. Next article. By the way, this is a call-in talk radio show, folks. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 781-837-4900. Here we go. Baby boomer money mistakes that Gen Z must learn. I like it. I like it. Okay. So this is an article from the main read, don't ask me, by a fellow by the name of Andrew Liso. All right. So here we go. It wasn't too long ago that baby boomers were babies, but today they're either retired or close to it. And many are in for a tough road ahead. According to the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, the median boomer has $202,000 saved for retirement, which might sound like a lot. It doesn't to me. But based on the 4% rule, we'll come back to that, that's just $8,000 a year in income, and the median is doing better than many. Nearly half of all baby boomers have nothing saved at all. That's pretty terrifying number, and that's a behavior thing, by the way. If you're a baby boomer and you have nothing saved at all, I'm betting you've been living above your means for a whole long time, and retirement's not going to look pretty. Anyway, let's see. The oldest Gen Z Gen Zers today are where the oldest baby boomers were at the start of the 1970s. And they have a golden opportunity to learn from the mistakes of their elders. And they made plenty. All right. Boomers put, so mistake number one, and this is interesting, okay? Mistake number one, boomers put too much faith in the stock market. In June, the Wall Street Journal ran a story with the headlines, Boomers got hooked on stocks, now they can't let go. That same month, a Barron's headline blared, When Baby Boomers Love Their Stocks Too Much. These two publications are hardly alone. Organizations as varied as the Gallup Business Insider and Bentley University have all issued reports chronicling the baby boomers' chronic over-reliance on equity investing compared to other generations. Okay. Many baby boomers mistakenly thought stock market returns in the 2000s decade would be similar to those in the 1990s decade, said accredited financial counselor Camille Gaines, the founder of Retirement Certain. As their retirement plans were based on estimates on 
future returns that were too optimistic given the high returns of the spectacular bull market in the 1990s. Before I get to mistake number two, let me make some comments on that. So folks, in the 1990s, the stock market was absolutely on fire. And from about the middle, I lived through that as a financial advisor, starting somewhere around 1995 and until somewhere around 2000, 2001, when the world fell apart with the tech bubble. Okay, the stock market in the U.S. averaged about 15 or 18 percent per year. I think it was actually higher than that for some of those periods of time. And so we baby boomers, okay, we're looking at those numbers and saying they're going to go on forever, okay, and being too hooked on stocks, all that means is, you know, folks, you should own lots of stocks in your retirement plan, and we can have a discussion about how much and how old you are and a bunch of other things, but, but it's not owning the stocks, okay, that was the problem. It was assuming that some unbelievably high returns that happened for six or seven or eight years would continue for the rest of your life, given the circumstances. Besides managing money for folks, we're also all certified financial planner practitioners at McNamara Financial. And what that means is that not only do we try to achieve certain routine turns for folks in their portfolios, but we use those return estimates in a retirement plan scenario for them, okay? And so that's a pretty big responsibility. Managing money and getting a good return is one thing. Using that return as an assumption for what stocks are gonna do for the rest of your life, that's a whole other assumption, folks, okay? And the point of this little tidbit here is that if you sit down and base your retirement plan future returns on a 10% return per year, that's a lot easier to get to than if it's a 9% return or an 8 or a 7% return. Okay, it just so happens, and I'm gonna round off here, folks, and don't hold me to it, but from about 20, from about 2001, when that rock and roll retirement S&P 500 returns, when those rock and roll returns ended, for the next two decades, if you took a 20-year snapshot of the S&P 500, it was about 6 or 7%, not 10 or 12 or 15, okay? And so my point is, what you use for investment return assumptions in your retirement plan calculations is a mighty big guess and a mighty important one. And you probably want to be hopefully reasonable and somewhat conservative on that estimate. At McNamara Financial, our guess is for the rest of your life, stocks are in some way between seven and 9% per year. Shoot me if I'm wrong, but that's what we think is reasonable. Okay, if you looked at that number in the 1990s, we looked stupidly conservative. If you looked at that number for the two decades, the next 20 years, and that number is something that you might actually be on the low side, but at least it's conservative. Bottom line is projecting retirement returns on your investments is tricky, and it also could be dangerous. C- connected to that, people have pensions, 
okay, that they get from public sector organizations, usually cities and states and police forces and teachers, their public pensions. And you look into the future and, hey, I'm, if I do my 30 years, they're going to give me X percent of my salary somewhere down the line. The people who manage that money and make those promises, they're assuming certain returns on the investments. Let's hope that they're right. And by the way, a whole lot of public sector pensions in this country are underfunded either because their investment assumptions are too high or maybe the contributions were too low. But projecting investment returns, short story, you probably want to be conservative about that, folks, and realistic. Okay, moving right along. Okay, so here's the second problem, and this is also a biggie. Okay, Gen Z should plan with the sequence of returns risk in mind. What the heck is a sequence of returns risk. Okay, I'll do a brief read and then do a McNamara summary here. It wasn't just the 90s. The post-2008 pre-COVID-19 bull market in the 2010s was the longest in history. So we're talking about the one that ended about two years ago, if you want to get official, folks. Okay, it was. So we had the longest bull market in history, and the market quickly bounced back to new highs after the pandemic crash. That might have given older investors reckless confidence to keep their money in play. Then, just as many stock-heavy boomers began drawing from their retirement nest eggs in early retirement, an extended downturn turned into a bear market right when inflation hit a 40-year high. Boomers fell victim to what's called sequence of returns risk. Sequence risk relates to the timing of retirement withdrawals in relation to poor investment returns, said Gaines. Gen Z can plan conservatively and be aware of the sequence of returns risk in their retirement planning. Okay, let me do the Reader's Digest version of this. So folks, the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. Over the long term, it always goes up. Okay, but there are some unpleasant downs along the way. Okay, so just think about this, and I'm going to be extreme, but okay, the absolute best time to retire is at the very end of a terrible market when the market is way down in value. Only problem is you don't know exactly when that is. But if you retired, if you were brave enough to retire at the bottom of a bad market, which, by the way, you didn't know it was the bottom, you saw nothing but pretty nice returns in your retirement plan for the next few years. Okay, okay. if you were retiring at the very end of a really good market when prices were high and returns were wonderful, by the way, you won't know the timing, folks. Don't get too concerned about that. We don't know. But if you returned at the end of a really good market, I'm going to invest my money, I'm going to start taking money, and oh, son of a gun, for the next two, three, four years, you'll get your money shrinking as you're doing that. Folks, when you're taking money from your investment portfolio, you are more vulnerable than if you're not taking money from your investment portfolio. So again, I'll do an extreme example just to illustrate the point. Okay, if you retire and your portfolio goes down 10% a year for the next five years, 
you are probably, I won't say the word screwed, maybe I will, okay, you are probably in dire financial difficulty because your portfolio is shrinking, you're taking money out of it, and its ability to recover is impaired by the mere fact of its size. Oops, that was a bad time to retire. Folks, you're not going to know that. We'll get back to that in a moment, okay? If you happen to retire at the very bottom of a bear market, if you were brave enough to do that, okay, again, you don't know when that is, okay, not only did your retirement plan look pretty good, it got better for the next few years because your part of money grew, okay? And what do you do about that? How does that, how does that work, okay? So you do a couple things about that, okay? So okay, the first thing you do, okay, uh, is that, Okay, if you are taking money from your portfolio, you're presto, you're retired, okay, what you want to do is let's pretend you need $2,000 a month from your portfolio. If you need $2,000 a month from your portfolio, you have one account as your retirement plan, that's $24,000 a year. Okay, I think that inside that retirement plan of yours, you ought to have at least a couple of years of cash in that retirement plan. So in this case, $48,000 worth of your $500,000 retirement plan is in cash. If you have two years of $2,000 per month income, pretty much guaranteed for the next two years, you just bought yourself some time to ride out the downturn without having to liquidate any of your stocks while they're down to replace your income. Okay. You can't plan. You can't predict when a bad market's going to come, but you can prepare your way out of it by having enough dry powder inside your retirement plan for to live for two or three years to wait for things to get better. If you go back a really long time, the longest downturn on average is about 12 to 14 months. Seems like forever when stock markets go down. And in my lifetime, and probably the lifetime of a whole lot of folks listening, the longest down we've, down we've had is 30 months. If you had two or three years worth of dry powder in your portfolio from which you were taking money, you could have waited out that downturn and not have to have sold any stocks when they're down. And yeah, you just protected your retirement plan by being prepared for it. You can be prepared. You can't predict, folks. And that's pretty simple. The other thing that you can do, okay, is if you happen to have a financial plan, an official one in place, working with preferably a certified financial planner, pardon the commercial here, folks. Okay, most financial planners these days and most planning software include what's called a Monte Carlo analysis. And what that does is it varies the investment returns that you're using as a guess for the rest of your life. I think I'm going to earn 6% per year on my combination stock and bond return portfolio for the rest of my life. By the way, that's not an unreasonable guess, okay? What the software does is, wait a minute, but if you started and your market goes down for the next five years, that's not good. If you started and the market goes up, that's good, but you don't know. Okay, the Monte Carlo scenario allows it it varies the returns in your portfolio going forward within lines of the past volatility, okay, of the assets that you own. What does that mean? It means that 
the machine will use the history of the volatility of the investment you have. Okay, it'll vary that return randomly, and it'll run a thousand different possible investment scenarios for the rest of your life. Some good, some bad. That's how all that works. Well, okay, and out spits a percentage. This is a guess, folks, but it's a pretty good one. If the percentage is 90%, what that meant is that of a thousand possible different scenarios that happen for the rest of your life, in 900 of them, you made enough money not to run out of money. And in a th- in 100 of them, there was a 10% chance that you would run out of money. Okay, I like those odds. If, you're gonna, if your Monte Carlo score was a 90% guess, okay, that, remember, that assumes bad markets. That's a pretty good place to be a thing. If your Monte Carlo score is 50%, Maybe you got a better, you got a bigger bet to make about when you retire. So my point is, you can also make some fairly sophisticated guesses after you pick an investment return about what that might look like for the rest of your life, and go with the probabilities from there. That was a long-winded explanation, but the sequence of return risks. All that means is that you have to be able to wait your way through them. Okay, if you're already retired, and if you're not yet retired, you might want to take a look at the probability of looking at that return. Folks, it's a guess. Nothing's perfect. Nothing's guaranteed. But it's a real good one and probably better than the one that you're going to make given the circumstances. Okay. And then the last... Boy, oh boy. This is only like the second or third article, Tim. Okay. Anyway, last... Good thing you still have two hours. Yeah, I know. Wait a minute. So the last tidbit here. Okay. I love this. Boomers traded retirement for their kids' educations. Oh, yeah. Okay. In 2012, when the oldest baby boomers were beginning to retire, the National Center for Policy Analysis released a study that showed boomers were spending a greater percentage of their income on education and their adult children, including paying back their student loans, than they were on retirement savings, okay? A little more than a decade later in 2023, two out of five boomers are on deck for retirement with nothing saved at all. Okay, so let me read that again. In 2012, when the oldest baby boomers were beginning to retire, the National Policy Center released a study that showed boomers were spending a greater percentage of their retirement income on education and their adult children including paying back their student loans than they were on retirement savings. So let me come back to this, okay? Here's the moral of this story, folks. And I think I might even time this to the break, Tim, here. The moral of the story is, okay, when we sit down with folks and try to start planning with retirement and look into their expenses, okay, there are a whole bunch of kid-related expenses, okay, that boomers are paying for either out of kindness or necessity. And those expenses, by the way, by and large, are education loans, okay, that, that they've taken out for college just because they never got a job that was enough to pay for all those things. So if you're planning for retirement, the moral of the story from my point of view, and we see these expenses, folks pay a, folks in retirement are spending a fairly considerable percentage of their income either by choice or by not supporting kids and grandkids 
and most of those come with college loans, student debt, or daycare expenses sort of a thing. Okay, if you're planning for retirement, the moral of the story is, and if you have kids and grandkids, I have a news flash for you. You're going to have more time to spend more money on your kids and grandkids, and you have to be very careful about that. Okay, when we sit down with folks, even if their grandkids are not born yet or they're very young, we tell them that it's there's a pretty good chance that there's a there's some significant percentage of your retirement expenses by choice or out of love, okay, or out of necessity, okay, are going to be spent on kids and grandkids, and you need to budget for that. Or said differently, a number of retirement plans with the folks that we work with have been smashed and dashed because of things that came up, okay, that related to supporting children and grandchildren and those costs. Folks, it's a fact of life. You have to plan for it, and it could be a killer in retirement if you're not care about it. The stories I could tell, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. 